Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast An Evening with Karl Ove Knausgaard from our 2018 programme. The Norwegian literary phenomenon Karl Ove Knausgaard leapt to notice with his arresting cycle of six autobiographical novels, My Struggle, described by the Paris Review as extreme in its candour, by turns earnest and satiric, attentive to the minutiae of postmodern family life. His latest works are a contemplative four-volume series named after the seasons and inspired by the birth of his daughter, and Home and Away, Writing the Beautiful Game, co-written with Frederick Eklund about football and more. Knausgaard is also an informed speaker on Edvard Munch and Dante, and the author of A Time for Everything. The book world's man of the moment joins Paula Morris in conversation in a session supported by Norwegian Literature Abroad. We hope you enjoy it. Kalova hemehinoikiakwe. Enamana, enareo, enamanuhiri tuarangi, tenakato, tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. And also, gokvel alasamen, which I believe is Norwegian for your troll has just eaten my passport. I'm Paula Morris, and it is my delight and privilege to be sitting here tonight in conversation with Karl Ove Knausgård, uh, with thanks to the Norwegian Literature Fund for supporting tonight. May I take this opportunity to ask you to turn your phones to silent, please? Of course, if you want to tweet, that's fine, but just take the ringer off. Now, earlier this week, uh, I, was, I told someone I was interviewing a Norwegian writer at the festival, and they said, is it Scandi Noir? <laughs> well, kind of. <laughs> so Karl Ove Knausgård is in a category of his own, one that resists categorization. His first two novels, Out of the World and A Time for Everything, were acclaimed in Scandinavia and beyond. And between 2009 and 2011, he published a novel in six parts, Min Kamp, or My Struggle, that has proved a sensation around the world. Profound and provocative, these books are a deep dive into one person's psychology and experience of the world in a way that's exhilarating to read. Variously described as autobiographical novels, autofiction, or that horrible word, faction, my struggle started appearing in English in 2012, with five now published in the final installment due later this year. Ceaselessly compelling, said James Wood of the first book, and this, I think, is the reason for the drip-feeding of us in English. If all the books had appeared at once, we would binge-read and not leave the house for weeks. Now, the six volumes of my struggle have been described as a commentary on contemporary life in the West, a sweeping novel of ideas in the tradition of Thomas Mann and Fyodor Dostoevsky, though I suspect the author might disagree with that emphasis on ideas. And Joshua Rothman in The New Yorker has argued that the intense experience of reading my struggle relates to emotions, not ideas. It's reacquainted me with the vividness of feelings, he said. It's a sentimental education. Now, briefly, if we can use that word in relation to my struggle, I'll just take you through the book so far. This is my speed read. Book one, A Death in the Family, explores the demise of a, an alcoholic father and the implications of his long-term emotional estrangement. Book two is A Man in Love, about Karl Orver's second marriage and becoming a father. And books three and four, Boyhood Island and Dancing in the Dark, we follow him through his childhood in southern Norway to teaching at the age of 18 in the wild far north. And continuing the song reference theme for titles, book five, Some Rain Must Fall, chronicles becoming, not becoming, becoming a writer, from studying at a writing academy to finally publishing his first book. Now, the sixth volume coming up is called The End. In case we delude ourselves, there will be more. Though, of course, there is more in the form of the Seasons Quartet, of which we have three volumes so far, and the wonderful book, Writing the Beautiful Game, a conversation about football and the last World Cup. Please welcome again to Auckland, Karl Ove Knausgård.
Thank you. Now, Karlova, you're a reserved person. You're a Norwegian person who likes to spend time alone writing. I read a quote from you where you said, I never say anything to people I don't know, even when they're having dinner at our house. <laughs> but now, of course, you're one of the most famous writers in the world, and everyone imagines that they know all your business. And your friend, the Swedish writer Fredrik Eklund, asked you, did you ever, in your wildest dreams, imagine that it could turn out like this, with a canal school wave rolling out over the world? Did you? No, I did not. Uh, especially not with this project, my struggle, because it was um, it was so very personal and so very private, and it was about my life, which is a very ordinary life. And I thought, to me, that was a very literary experiment. I wanted to be very, you know, see how far realism could take me, uh, and I. I thought maybe some of my friends would read it. Maybe not them, you know, because I also go into great details in, in a relatively boring life in a way, and, and I thought this is unreadable. And my publishing house also thought that. They didn't expect anything <laughs> to happen. So we printed relatively low first print, you know, uh, and then it just took off from one day to another, and it was a completely shock. It was very huge in Norway, so it was on TV, it was on radio, it was in the news. It was the one thing people talked about for months. So it was, I had to shut down, protect myself completely, because I was still writing. You know, I was writing these books in the same year as they were published. So I never got this chance to adapt to it. It was like just something happened out there. But I thought, in Norway, it's done, it's, it's fine, it's over. Uh, but then it started again in a different way, but still, here I am, many years later, in New Zealand, talking about these books, and it is absolutely amazing and very, very hard to get a grip on, because it is, you know, very much me being alone in a room, writing about what's in my head, and how on earth, why should that be relevant to anyone else, you know? That's, yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the things I thought we could talk about tonight, how you being so very particular about your experience has clearly struck a chord with people who've lived very different lives in very different places from yours. Now, so I wonder if we could begin by talking about uh, something you've mentioned, that you spent many years practicing to write the first novel, The Death and the Family, that it took you a long time to find the right way of telling that story. It's a very nice way of putting it, to see practicing. <laughs> <clears throat> I published my first novel in 1998. Before that, I had 10 years trying to be a writer, failing, you know. Um, and that's very hard because I didn't know that I was a writer. I doubted I was a writer, I doubted everything, you know. And, and, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, a novel came. And then I thought I should repeat it. It took me five years of failing. You know, I had 800 pages of beginnings, you know, like one sentence or one page or, or five pages. Just couldn't find my way into it. And then all of a sudden, there was a novel written in a few months. And then I thought, no, okay, this time it will be easy. And then it was another five years of trying. And, and this is, you know, this is for real, this is my job. I go to job every day and I fail. And it happened, it, it, it takes years, you know. Um, as a journalist, you know, starts to call me up if they have this, um, they're writing an article about writer's block, who should we talk to? Yeah, we talk to him. <laughs> or they have this, um, where are they now? Uh, feature articles, you know, and they would, would call me. But this particular book, I wanted to write about something that happened just before my first novel was published, because then my father died. So I had the proofs with me with the first book. Um, and I went down to the house where he died, and he was an alcoholic. Uh, and he lived with my grandmother, and the house looked... It, was, um, it looked terrible, it looked like a junkie nest. Um, and I came there, I thought I hated my father, 
you know, I wanted him dead. I came there and I was crying for a week. And me and my brother cleaned up the house because we wanted to give him a proper, you know, proper burial. And, and it was so intense that week. And I, I knew I have to write about this. And I have to write about this, you know, because it was about life and death, but it was also about who am I and who was my father. That was a mystery to me. That was the story I wanted to write. And that I tried and tried and tried and tried, but I didn't believe in it. You know, I, I did it as fiction. You know, I called my father something else and invented something, but it just didn't work. And then after five years, I said, you know, fuck literature, fuck retention, fuck everything. I'm just going to write it exactly as it was. And that was such a relief for me, that thought. It doesn't matter what people would think. It doesn't matter if it's good or it's bad. I'm just going to write it, you know. It was like a, 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 you know, a gate was open. It was just flooding out. Uh, so then I wrote the first book. And then I know I can just continue because I have a language for uh, that is relevant for me, for what I want to achieve in literature, which is to get close to life and to, to my own life. Uh, but I think what happened then is, as you say, it is a kind of a rehearsal, you know. You're doing things, you're in the material, you're working with it, just doesn't work, and then all of a sudden it works. That's what I, I normally say to, to uh, students, is that it is it's very, very, very easy to write a novel. It's, it's, it's the easiest thing. The hard thing is to get to the place where it's easy, you know, that's the, <laughs> that's the thing. How would you describe what you were doing when you wrote that first book? Did you always think it's still a novel, even though I'm writing about me with my real name and my family with their real names? You never thought I'm writing a memoir. You always saw it as a novel? Yeah, I did. Um, I had this... Um, I've always liked diaries very much. Um, and it has always kind of comforted me somehow, and I can read very diaries of very uninteresting lives. There is a, especially a Norwegian poet who wrote diary throughout his life, and he was very old, so it's like he covers 80 years, and he lived alone on a farm. He was alone for almost all his life, and it's very monotonous, the same thing repeated every day. And it's a little bit new thinking, but then it's the same. And I, I felt it's such a comfort to be there, to read that. And I thought of, what if, what if you have that quality, which is really just to be close to someone, you know, another one. Uh, and when you read, you, you enter that, you, you take it and, and become you almost. What if you have that quality and add, uh, you know, a dramatic sequence, and make it into a kind of a novel and try to merge those two, those two forms. And, and, and I had a kind of conscious thought of that when I started writing, I want to do that which means I can allow myself to be boring, I can allow myself to go into details. It's, it's, that's not the interesting thing. The interesting thing is to be close to a self and, and, and you know, things will change and, and will have the emotions will change and you have, you have something going. And then also you have freedom of integrating thoughts uh, with what's going on. So you could just, you have the freedom to start to reflect on something, whatever and just leave what's going on in the novel, and you can do that for 100 pages and then can go back, and that kind of freedom was very hard to achieve, but when I achieved it, it was, it was what I wanted, I think, and, and freedom is number one thing in literature for me. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm writing. I want a place where I'm completely free, where I can do, you know, whatever. So then the trick is to get rid of restrictions, um, and, and that was the form. And, but it was not a conscious way, it was, trial and error all the way, and then, then this kind of writing turned up. Um, but I did it for me and for my own sake, you know, that was, I didn't have anyone else in mind. Carlos Franz, the Chilean writer who's here at the festival, on Friday was talking in a very similar way. He said, to write is to be free. That yeah. to, to get to that position where you feel free enough to write is the crucial thing. Yeah, and also you want to discover things when you're writing. That's why you're writing, and that's why you're reading, you know. Uh, so you need to, and the restrictions restrict you to do what you know and to do what you should, you know. So one thing you could think of if you, if you leave that path, 
you feel ashamed, you know, for instance, that could be a signal. Then you're leaving uh, what's called comfort zone, but then you're, then you're doing something that could be terrible because you're ashamed of it, or it could be interesting just because you left, you know, a restriction and you're into something, something else. And, and I remember when I first wrote my first novel, before it was a novel, it was an editor who called me. He had read something little I've been writing, and he and he uh, he um, he's the reason that I'm a writer. I met someone who who believed in me, and he said he wanted to read more. And I and I then just uh, I studied, but I quit stu my study and I rented an apartment and I started to write. And I sent him 60 pages, you know, just a month afterwards. And 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 I thought to myself. There was some scene that was so embarrassing. I couldn't think of anything else. I and mean, it was so stupid. And how could I ruin everything? How could I send? What would he think, you know? And then, of course, uh, when he, he, I went to his office and he said, well, this is, this is okay and it's, it's fine. And but there is one thing, especially thing, that's great, you know? And that was the thing I was embarrassed, embarrassed about. That was where I left, you know, what I should do. And, and, and I'm always thinking about that when I'm getting ashamed of something, you know, that that's a, often is, is a good sign. Somehow it's true. <laughs> Not in real life, though, <laughs> but in, in writing. And talking about the book about your father, A Death in the Family, when you're talking about finding the freedom to write it and to push yourself into uncomfortable places, we have to talk about as well the reception for the book. Yeah because other people felt they were in uncomfortable places. And you said that you were probably a little bit naive about how it would be received by some members of your family. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, that goes with what I've what I'm been saying now, that I wanted a place without restrictions, where I, where I was completely free. That meant I didn't think of my family's reaction. I didn't think of what they would think about the way I portrayed my, my father. Um, so I just wrote the book how I felt it should be. And then I sent it to everyone I was writing about, including my father's family, my uncle, I sent it to him. Um, and I thought maybe, you know, he would be annoyed or, or saying, okay, I don't like it, but, you know. Uh, but he and the family's reaction were, uh, they were outraged. There was a, fury and rage involved, and they wanted to stop the book. Um, and it was a complete shock to me. And I was very naive, but it was a complete shock to me. But then I had this situation that, okay, I'm writing a book. They say that you can't publish it because it, you know, it hurts us and, and it, it will destroy our family. Uh, and it wasn't published, so I could say, okay, I won't publish it. It's fine. I'll write another book, you know, um, because could I say that my book was more important than their life? No, I couldn't say that. But then I published it. So it was a conscious, <laughs> conscious choice. And it came after like a month or three weeks with a kind of an intense inner turmoil because I, I want to be good, I want to do good. I know if I do this, I'm not good. I'm just an immoral thing to do. But the thing that changed everything for me was the thought, I'd just turn it around and, and, and ask them, who are you to say that you can't write, that I can't write about my father? You know, is, that, is that a position you can, you can have? And that's, the, that's where the conflict is, you know? Uh, so I, I thought, this is true, this is the way it is, and I publish it, and, 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 and I did. Um, but they also said that I was lying. They said that the situation in the house uh, wasn't like I was describing it. There was no, he wasn't an alcoholic, my father. He died of a heart attack and he hadn't lived with my grandmother for two years. He'd just been there for a few weeks and she wasn't drinking. And I was lying and exaggerating just to, to make this book and to, to be famous and to earn money. Uh, and as you know, I started to doubt myself. Was it really that bad? Have I exaggerated? Because when you write something, you, you go into a, a, a kind of isolated state of mind and you, and you explore something that's inside your head. And there's no way you can balance it with the world when you're sitting in a room writing. So I started, to, I started really to doubt myself. 
and I felt uh, incredibly bad. And then I was writing and publishing all of these books through a year. So when I was writing, you know, book three, I got a letter from someone having, sitting, reading book one. And she said, you know, I started to read this book and there was this house and I realized I was in that house. She worked with the ambulance that came and took my father away when he was dead. Uh, and she said it was worse. And she had the details I didn't know of. And then you had the situation that my family lied to me <laughs> about my own father's death, you know? Extremely complicated and, and, and difficult, everything about this, really. Um, so I do, don't say this to defend myself, but it's, it's the situation, you know? That was how it, how it was. And I think writing about yourself, writing about your own life is based upon what you remember, and you know that memory deceives you, you know that memory aren't always correct, you know? So you, you, there's many things in your life you subconsciously change and shape into something that you can live with, you know? But that's the subject of the book too, you know? That doubt is part of the book. So, so this story I told now is in book six, mm -hmm. because book six deals with the consequences of the five first books. Mm -hmm. While we're talking about memory, I wonder if I could ask you to read a little bit from the book Boyhood Island. This might be a good moment to do it. Uh, Boyhood Island is, um, is one where I think your whole engagement with memory is particularly interesting and complex because it's of your childhood. And as you say, you can't possibly remember everything from your childhood. Yeah. So would you mind reading? Hang on, we have to see no, if I can use my glasses. Can... No, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> Just. Memory is not a reliable quantity in life. And it isn't for the simple reason that memory doesn't prioritize the truth. It is never the demand for truth that determines whether memory recalls an action accurately or not. It is self-interests which does. Memory is pragmatic. It is sly and artful, but not in any hostile or malicious way. On the contrary, it does everything it can to keep it host, its host satisfied. Something pushes a memory into the great void of oblivion. Something distorts it beyond recognition. Something misunderstands it totally. Something, and this something is as good as nothing, recalls it with sharpness, clarity, and accuracy. That which is remembered accurately is never given to you to determine. In my case, any memory of my first six years is virtually non-existent. I remember hardly anything. I have no idea who took care of me, what I did, who I played with. It has all completely gone. The years 1969 to 1974 are a great big hole in my life. The little I can muster is of scant value. I'm standing on a wooden bridge in a sparse, high-altitude forest. Beneath me rushes a torrent. The water is green and white. I'm jumping up and down. The bridge is swaying, and I'm laughing. Beside me is Gail Presbakmo, a boy from the neighborhood. He's jumping up and down and laughing too. I'm sitting on the rear seat of a car. We're waiting at the lights. Dad turns and says we are in Mjöndal. We are going into an IK start game, I've been told. But I can't remember a thing about the trip there, the football match or the journey home. I'm walking up the hill outside the house, pushing a big plastic lorry. It is green and yellow and gives me an absolutely fantastic feeling of riches and wealth and happiness. That is all. That is my first six years. <laughs> but these are canonized memories, already established at the age of seven or eight. The magic of childhood, my very first memories. However, there are other kinds of memories, those which are not fixed and cannot be evoked by will, but which at odd moments let go, as it were, and rise into my consciousness of their own accord and float around there for a while like transparent jellyfish, 
roast by a certain smell, a certain taste, a certain sound. These are always accompanied by an immediate, intense feeling of happiness. Then there are the memories associated with the body, when you do something you used to do, shield your eyes from the sun with your arm, catch a ball, run across a meadow with a kite in your hand and your children hard on your heels. There are memories that accompany emotions, sudden anger, sudden tear, sudden fear, and you are where you were, as if hurled back inside yourself, propelled through the ages at a breakneck speed. And there are the memories associated with the landscape, for landscape in childhood is not like the landscape that follows later. They are charged in very different ways. In that landscape, every rock, every tree had a meaning. And because everything was seen for the first time, and because it was seen so many times, it was anchored in the depths of your consciousness, not as something vague or approximate, the way the landscape outside a house appears to an adult if they close their eyes and it has to be summoned forth, but as something with immense precision and detail. Yeah. That was really good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but the thing, the thing is, this is the opening of the book, and it's true. And, and I, I'm going to write a book about childhood, and this is what I got, you know. And that the rest that follows is you know, kind of a contradiction to that, or trying to ev evoke those memories. I know they are there, but I don't know how to get to them. Now, this is the third book um, after Death in the Family and A Man in Love. Now, the first two books you wrote in a, a different sort of way. You approached them differently to the subsequent books, beginning with Boyhood Island. Would you talk about those differences in approach? Um, yeah, because the first book is, you know, I'm going to write about my father's death. That's, that's what I'm, that's the subject. But I couldn't start with the death because I wanted the reader to know the circumstances, to know me, to know, and to, to go there, you know, through a path and, and to then to enter, to get the effect of, I, that I felt when my father died, you know. Uh, it was like a long travel, no nothing, anything, and then there it is, there's a house, it's like entering a zone. So um, then I just started accidentally almost, right about being 16, um, going to a party, a New Year's Eve party. Uh, it's very hard to get there, very hard to get something to drink. Uh, there is my uncle coming, he's going to my, my parents' house, and he can't see us with, uh, with plastic bags with bears. So every time there is a car, we have to, <laughs> to, to take down the, the bags in, so he can't see it. And we come to the party, and we are rejected, and we go home, and that's it. But that's a hundred pages. I was going to say, it's a long scene. <laughs> and then, then I know, then this is, what's that? This is life, you know? This is, this is how life is, you know? It's, uh, and then it's a kind of a contrast to to death, and this sequence ends with me seeing my father when he's 40 and his life changed, he get divorced, he starts to drink, and there is this night, and there is, uh, he's having a party, and I'm coming home, and still 16, and, and then you could start the second part, which is the real novel, you know? And this all just happened accidentally, more or less. And then book two is just a continuation of that, but opposite logic. The first book is, Everyday life, everyday life, boring, 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 everyday life. You know, it's like a sea of mundane things, and then death, you know. And if you have been close to death, you know that that's something completely different, you know. It's like it's so charged with meaning, um, and then it kind of dissolves, and then you're out of it, uh, and then life starts again. And then I thought, what's the opposite? That's love or childbirth, you know? And it's the same logic. It's like it's, it's your life is, is, is like it is, and, 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 and then something like that happened, and it's charged with meaning, you know? And that's the structure of those two books, you know? It's, it's, um, and when I've done that, it was 1,200 pages, I gave it to my editor, and, and we discussed how to publish it. Uh, you know, one book or two books? Two books, 
Uh, and he suggested, what if we do it in 12 books and publish one each month through a year, do something special you know, out of it, which is a fantastic thought to get from an editor. Mm. <laughs> and then we decided, yeah, we do that, but we have six because of the practicalities. So then I could decide, should I part this book in six and publish it, or should I have parted it in two and write four in that year? And I decided on that, and then I needed a plan. And then the plan was very easy, you know, these two books, and then childhood, adolescence, um, becoming, a becoming a writer, a student, uh, biting, ending up with my father's death, and then book six, the consequences. So that was the structure. And then I started to write this when book one was published, and, and proofreading on book two, and reviews starting to come out. And it was very chaotic, it was like a stunt, but it was extremely, um, you know, it was like you had a knife on, yeah, on your throat, you had, just had to write. Mm -hmm. And then I started this book, and then I had all, only these memories and nothing else, and I needed to write, to get it done in like two months time. So you wrote it in two months? I think, uh, maybe three, and I think the five, book five was two months. Respect. No, it's just, it's what I'm saying, it's, it's about not having any restrictions. So if you have a restriction for quality, for instance, it's, it's, it's hard to do it. But if you say to yourself, I write five pages this day, no matter what, and I will use it in a novel, then you have to do it. And then you can say 10 or 20, and it's, it's possible. So it's just to kind of lower the expectation of what it is. <laughs> it's, it's true, that's, that's the way this book is written. Now, your working title, when you were working on this, at one point was Argentina in English, or Argentina, you would say. So why was Argentina your, your vague working title? Um, many reasons for that. Uh, one is that this book is about longing, and it's like it's always longing away from where you are. And, and to me, Argentina is kind of the country of dreams, really. You know, when I first saw Argentina, I was in 1978 on TV, the World Cup, you know, I was like, where is this, where is this place? I was 10 years old. And then I started to read, and then Borges is still one of my absolute favorite writers, you know, uh, and the way he writes about reality, and, and he's Argentinian. And just before I uh, started to write that book, I read uh, Gombrowicz, a Polish writer, his diaries. He lived in Argentina when I was writing it. So many things pointed to Argentina, like, and then it's, it's a kind of, um, it's in South America, but it still has this European, you know, touch to it that I, I always wanted, I always wanted to go there. This is the dream, the country of my dreams. And I know I'm never going to go there, you know, it's kind of a literary country to me. But as a title, it, it stinks, it's a very bad title, and it wouldn't have worked <laughs> with that title. By the way, are you a, you're a Maradona fan, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Maradona or Pele, you're Maradona? Yeah. Controversial. <laughs> have you been to Argentina now? I have been invited so many times, but I... Uh, uh, they know that I like and love Argentina, so that they invite me all the time, but I... I want to keep it that way. I want to keep it like a, you know, like a dream. So I don't. This go. is the Protestant Norwegian coming out in you, isn't it? You must deny yourself, Argentina. <laughs> so having abandoned Argentina as a title, you came up with a more controversial one, Mein Kampf, which, and sometimes we know as Mein Kampf in German, my struggle. I also read, I don't know if this is true or apocryphal, that your brother sent you a joking email when you told him what you were working on, it was entitled, the subject line was, your fucking struggle. That's uh, true. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about the genesis of that title. Um, it was coincidental, like everything in this novel. Uh, I was talking with my friend, we were discussing Adolf Hitler and Mein Kampf, and I was just you know, uttering the word Mein Kampf, and he said, well, there's your title. And I knew instantly that he was right, because this is a book about struggle, and it's my struggle, and it is. Um, the good thing about the title is the irony in regard to uh, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, which is a totalitarian uh, struggle, you know? It's, it's completely different, and this is the little life. He's writing about something completely different, and I thought this is, this is, 
this is the title. And I, I called my editor again, and he said, no, you can't call the book that. Uh, but he changed his mind a week later, he, he agreed. And it, it was also a, a, a provocation. I wanted to say, you know, this isn't, this is my book, this is, I'm doing this without compromises. So it is a way to say that. But it also has a, a relation to what I'm writing about. Uh, you know, when my grandmother died, uh, we found a copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf in, you know, a chest in the living room. How did that book get there? What is this? You know, this is a kind of family-related thing. And then calling the book My Struggle meant that I had to read Hitler's My Struggle. Uh, so I started to read that. I actually did that on the plane to Reykjavik. I was going to a literary event, and I, and I brought the book with me. Uh, and I, and I you know, did like that and should start to read it, and then I realized this is a book you can't read in public. <laughs> and it's one of very few books you really can't read in public. That makes it very interesting, as a, you know, if you're writing about life and literature, isn't it? It's, 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 you know, how, what is this? What is this book? And then I started to read it, and in book six, uh, that reading is, is 400 pages of reading that book about Hitler being young, Hitler's life, uh, about the growth of Nazism, about Holocaust, uh, and that came about just because of the title. So this is the only part of the book that's not me, that's not contemporary, but something completely different, and, and it, it is... Somehow I think it makes sense, and somehow I think it's, it's, it's a very, very important part of the book. And it is kind of a statement that the book is very anti-totalitarian in its kind of in its concepts, in, in its ways. My book is about misunderstanding things. My book is about blushing. It's about stuttering. It's about failing. It's about all those kind of things. It's about you know burning your finger when you're making food. It's about it's about those kind of things, which is human life. You know that's that's what it is. And then you have totalitarianism, then you have Nazism, then you have Stalinism, which is, with that, that just doesn't exist, you know? And if you read Hitler's book, that doesn't exist, you know? So those kind of levels, I, I yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, I was very interested in when I did it, and I think it's, it's a very vital and important part of the book, I think. When you were writing that, were you still in Norway? Were you living in Sweden? You were living in Sweden, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was living in Sweden. So you, you said that Norway changed a lot uh, in the 90s. It, it went from the place that you grew up to being a very different sort of country um, because it became very affluent, I wonder. Is, is that the reason? I mean, do you feel like when you're writing about it that you're writing about something that is gone, not just the past, but the place you knew then? Uh, when I wrote about the 70s, yeah, very much so, and also the 80s. Uh, but I think that is general for the whole world, I think. Uh, but contemporary Norway is a bit different from what it was when I lived there. I've, I haven't lived there for, you know, 15 years, so, yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, you live in Sweden. I mean, I'd like to talk a little bit about Norway and Sweden, if that's all right with you. I just thought we might ask if there are any Norwegians in the house. That, that probably means there's 200 of them but they're just being very low-key about it. Any Scandinavians generally? Yeah, that's another hundred right there, isn't there? Yeah. Um, one thing I find really fascinating, because all my knowledge of Norway is, you know, Grieg, Ibsen, the videos of AHA, I mean, it's, it's quite limited. Um, but and don't even pretend you haven't watched them. Um, one thing that comes through in all your books is, is the regional differences in Norway you from the south experiencing something quite different when you go to Bergen, the university town or the university city, and then again when you go to the wilds of the north, as I called it, to teach when you're 18, and your students are swearing and you tell them not to, and they say, well, everyone swears in the north of Norway. Um, could you, would you mind characterizing Norway a little for us so we understand what kind of place it is? You said to me that you thought it was quite like New Zealand. It's, uh, it's, it's got exactly the same size, exactly the same number of people living there. So it's a small nation. I think it's like 4.7 million or something. 
in, in Norway, and it's also a maritime country. That's very important for the mentality in the country, I think. Uh, so that's, that's also very similar. Um, it's what's important, I think, uh, and I didn't like that when I lived there. It's very egalitarian. So when I was young, I wanted, you know, I wanted, I wanted the best. I wanted the best literature. I wanted the best music. I wanted. So I, I, I as a student, I read Swedish papers, newspapers, because they were the only who would write about, you know, good poetry and good literature. And, and there is an elitist culture in Sweden. It doesn't exist in Norway. You are. Everyone is supposed to be part of, you know, the people. So even the king, you know, takes the tram. There's a very famous. And that's, that's very much the identity of Norway. So when, I, when I was there, I thought, okay, there's no room for art. But when I left and came to Sweden and, and saw that in Norway, I, I think that's a, that's a great quality in, in, in a country, that you know, concept of egalitarian society. And it has historical roots. Norway is a country of peasants. No nobility, never existed nobility. It was under Denmark, you know, Danish rule. That's why Norway don't want to be in the European um, Union, because never again someone else should rule us. Uh, and, um, and Sweden had nobility, so Sweden has this structure of, of uh, like uh, hierarchic structure. So in, when I moved to Sweden, that was what surprised me, that there is a kind of a... Um, uh, they are very known to be polit politically correct, and, and they are really. So there is, you are supposed to, you know, say this, and everybody should say this, and everybody agrees on this. I don't know what you call that, but it is a kind of a. That's. It's not 100%, but it's 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 very typical for Sweden. In Norway, you don't have that. You have all kinds of opinions and, and arguing and, and quarrelling. It's a very different climate. But to you, from here, it's the same. This is Scandinavia, you know, it's the same thing. But living there, it's 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 you know, it's, I guess it's the same thing that we say Australia, New Zealand, it's the same thing. But for you guys, it's not, right? It's, it certainly is yeah. not. No, I think it's the same thing. And you have the same well, in so You'll be drummed out of Auckland soon with these kind of heretical opinions. I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I think one of the funniest things in, your, in, your, uh, in the second volume and also in the football book is when you rail against Sweden. Um, uh, in the yeah. second book, Karlova goes to a children's party and finds that they've put out carrots and hummus for the poor children. And you're like, what's wrong with cake and coke? The politically correct Swedes are, are at it again. So. I think you imply at some point that you think the Swedes see Norwegians as, as uncouth or somehow a bit wild or... I, I've started to see Norwegians as Swedes see them. The first thing when I came to Sweden, I was almost shocked that Norway didn't mean anything in Sweden. They didn't care about Norway, they didn't write about Norway, Norway didn't exist. They were turning, you know, but to us, we look up to Sweden. When I grew up, Sweden was the country. They had, you know, had the music, they had ABBA, they had the car, Volvo, they had Björn Borg, they had everything. So we, it was like the big brother. We call Sweden sweet brother in Norway. Uh, but then I came there and I realized they don't care about Norway. And they portrait Norway as, as some, there's some like, not exactly like monkeys, but like some very uncivilized <laughs> people, you know. And when you see a Swedish professor, he would be, you know, in a suit and he would be very formal and very correct. And, and if you see a Norwegian professor, he would have like a hair up there and he would <laughs> say something like, you know, very heartfelt. And, and, and that's okay, it's very stereotypic and very a caricature, but there is some element of, of that. And then you have Denmark also, but I won't go into that. It's, it's, it's <laughs> but I think all regions has this, you know, there is a, you define yourself against your neighbors and you have your own identity and, and, and that's just a good thing. I mean, there's so many good things in Sweden and there's so many good things in Norway and, and also bad things, of course, but it's just distributed differently. Mm -hmm. So it's very frustrating being a Norwegian in Sweden. It's very frustrating. I have a quote from you here um, about being an outsider in Sweden. Uh, you said this, even though you've lived there for years, as you say, there is still a distance in me, and that's language-related, because so many codes are embedded in language. And you said in Norway, I know where I am at once. So you speak, I've, in the book often, you, in the books, you often go into a Swedish place and speak Norwegian, 
and they pretend not to understand you or unable to understand you? Because the, the languages are similar enough. Yeah, yeah. Do you still speak Norwegian and Sweden? <clears throat> yeah, I do, but I do have to change words so that it's you know, going to go smoothly. But the thing with, with is very interesting because it has to do with intimacy somehow, uh, especially joking is very connected to something intimate in language, you know? And, and if, you, if it's your native language, you, you would just know what to say, what you can say, what's... You know, so when I come to Norway and I uh, buy a newspaper at the airport or something, I could tell a joke or just, you know, like, a, not a joke, but something to the person working there. In Sweden, that's hard, harder, because I, I'm distant to the language, and, and, and then I just don't do that, and uh, instead I get silent, you know? And also because if you do, you could tell a joke to, let's say it's five people around the table and you tell a joke and they just look at you. <laughs> they just don't get it, you know. That feeling that makes you withdraw and don't take those chances and, and, and it is very much connected to language, I think. Uh, and I find it, find it interesting. And because where is your identity, you know? Is it the culture? Is it the policy? Is it, uh, what is it? Or it Maybe it's the language, you know, that everything of that is in the language somehow. Um, and, yeah, writing a novel is also a way of exploring that, you know. And all the things that you think belongs to you, because this is your language, you're talking it, is kind of charged with so many things that's not you, you know. You just use it. It's, it's, it's something that will stay on when you are dead, uh, you know, so it's not yours. And that is very interesting also, the collective, um, the, you know, when you're writing about yourself, like I have been so many thousand pages, and then realizing it, how many percent of this is me, exclusively me, it's, it's almost nothing. I mean, you know, some of the specific experiences, of course, but everybody has had similar experiences, and the thoughts in that book, everybody has had those thoughts, bad, good, you know, it's like it's... it's uh, it's kind of a common ground. And I discovered that by writing that book, and I didn't know that before. I have a, a lovely quote from, I think it was your eldest daughter, uh, when you were working on your Football World Cup book with Frederick Eklund. Frederick was in Rio at the World Cup, you were at home watching it on TV. And you, your daughter was grilling you about the book, and she shouted, don't write what you're thinking about, Dad. And you said, that's what I do. <laughs> I wondered about your children. I mean, they're still young, but what do they think of you as a writer or know of you as a writer? And especially as you're writing in Norwegian, I assume they speak Swedish. Yeah, no, um, they know I'm a writer and they know what I've done, but they haven't read, they haven't read the books. They're not interested, um, really. Uh, and they're not interested in what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> my son is now 10. But when he was eight, uh, uh, you know, I asked him, what were you going to do when you grow up? And he said, I'm going to be a writer. And I said, why? And he said, oh, because it's so easy, it's so little work to be done. <laughs> so that's where they are. But then they will, of course, read it in due time. Uh, and I have no idea what, how they will react. But I think they will react differently throughout their lives. So. I think I started to understand my parents when I was around starting to write that book, or maybe also because I wrote that book. And then I was 40. Uh, before that, I, I had kind of, it was not misconceptions, but I just didn't have the tools to enter my father, for instance. It was like he was just this person without a soul almost. You know, he was very static and it was just a symbol to me. He wasn't, of course, but he was that too. And when I started to realize that he might have felt the same as I am feeling now or thought the same thing and have the same kind of longings and stuff, then he became human and then I could, you know, write about him and start to think about him. I start to understand him and stop being angry with him, you know, because I'm not angry with him anymore. Um, and I don't know how that will be with my children, but, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's hard to say. No, the, the the essay books, I'll call them, the, the seasonal books, um, two of them at least are, are short uh, pieces that you're writing to your youngest daughter, yeah. Anna. 
before she's born. Yeah. Why did you decide on this project for her? Um, it was, again, this was... Um, it was private at first. I wanted to give her something, and I thought I could, what I could give her, I could write a kind of a letter to her, which is also kind of a diary, a kind of, you know, we are expecting you, you are still not born, this is the world that you will come into, this is me, this is, you know, my, your mother, this is your siblings, this is the garden, this is everything. And I did it to her, so I wrote like 150 pages or so. And then at the same time I had another project writing short texts about objects in the world, uh, like I'm writing about, you know, a glass of water or a car or a bird or whatever, uh, which is kind of small meditations on things and the material world. And then I realized if I merge those two things, it will be something would happen. This would be like her, if you have her presence in mind, she hasn't seen the world and then you read the text, you will kind of maybe see them as she would see them, you know? And that, I love that, um, entering the world for the first time way, because that's what you want to do as a writer too. You know, you want to get back, get rid of everything you know about things and, and try to see it for the first time. So that was how that came about. Would you like to read Rubber Boots? Would you? Yeah, I can read. I can read that one. So this. Whatever you want. Yeah. So this is about things and this is about rubber boots. Since rubber boots are shaped to fit the foot and the upper calf, sort of like a sheath, when they are standing unused on the floor in the hall, they can at first glance look like an actual foot and lower leg seemingly amputated just below the knee. This is something they have in common with hanging jackets and shirts, which can also resemble the bodies they sheath. When I enter the hall in the late evening or early morning, it is as if impressions of the entire family's bodies are hanging on pegs and standing on the floor in the dark, like the negatives, as it were. Then the thought may come to me of what life would be like had they died in an accident, and all that was left were the spaces they once occupied. With my rubber boots, this is in fact the case, since I inherited them from my father when he died. The space that his feet and lower legs once filled is now standing on the floor by the wall in the hall. I no longer think of him very often, but I do every time I stick my feet into my boots, which fit me like a glove, and walk around in the garden in them. Of all the things he left behind, I took only two, his binoculars and his rubber boots. Why just those two, I don't know. Perhaps because they were neutral and yet useful at the same time. I could never have taken nor worn his lambskin jacket, for instance, it was too close to him, too typical an expression of him. I could never have shouldered it, nor wanted to. While rubber boots are not in any comparable way an expression of individuality, but are more or less the same for everyone. Nor could I have taken the paintings he had on his walls. They were close to him in a similar way, since he had selected just those pictures and had taken pleasure in looking at them and owning them. While the binoculars do not partake of this individuality, they're just binoculars, made to magnify whatever is far away, just as the boots are made to keep water out, which they are perfect for. The surface of the thick, rather stiff rubber is shiny and smooth so that water cannot cling to it. There are no cracks or tears it can penetrate. Instead, it glides slowly down to the ground or forms a moist and almost imperceptible membrane around the rubber, while the leg fits so snugly around the calf that the opening into the boot's interior is sealed. That the boot is absolute proof against weather can occasion great pleasure. 
Just think of the feeling one gets when one goes walking across a muddy field and the foot sinks down into the mud without anything penetrating its protective cover. The mud oozes up around the boot, but the foot remains dry and sovereign somehow. For isn't the feeling of sovereignty the very cause of the joy one might feel walking through a marsh or maybe wading in a brook in heavy waterproof boots? To be invulnerable, to be protected, to be a separate entity in the world? Yes, oh yes, that is precisely where I enjoy over the properties of the boots lies. Thank you. Um, I feel like I have so many questions to ask you, but I want to just mention to the audience that in about five minutes' time, we're going to go to questions from you, and that there, the lights will come up a little bit, and there'll be uh, microphones for you to go to. So if you are thinking about asking a question, you should start to maybe get it together now. And, just so that we and you can ask about anything. Really? Anything? Yeah, anything. I won't answer anything, but I can ask okay. about anything. And, and if anyone wants to make a statement about literature or life, please don't. Just ask a question. That would be really good. Um, I, I just, I've, I've got a few lighter questions to ask you. And one is something that I found fascinating about you that you're no good about paying bills on time. You say, I use top-up cards because no Swedish phone company will let me open an account. I have too many late payments on my credit report, nor will any bank lend me money to buy a house or a car. I have to pay everything in cash. Why are you so hopeless? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I really, I, I don't really know. Uh, but it, it's the thing, if you care about something, you do it properly, and if you don't care about it, it's, it's harder, I think, and with bills, I have this thing, if it com comes, I, I don't, you know, it's a common thing, maybe, but I don't op open it. <laughs> but then, this made me into a, a kind of a crisis with the tax people and stuff, and I, I always went bankrupt, and I had to pay enormously much money, because, in, in, you know, they have some kind of punishment taxes. Uh, it was really, really, and it was in a newspaper, and it was very, it was a terrible situation. And then, you know, I, I, I get an accountant and I hired people, and, and now they're just, they're just doing it for me. <laughs> it just surprised me because I know that you really take care of your children. You're always running them around. You're making them lunches. You're yeah. getting them organised. So that's because it's something you care about and bills. Yeah, and I'm not afraid of that, but I am afraid of everything that has related to money and to, to, to economy and to all of that. And, and it's very stupid, but if I'm afraid of something, I just, you know, neglect it or mm -hmm. don't think about it. Or, and then it builds up and then there is a, is, is a, is a real problem. So, and it's so easy to see and it's so easy to you should do it, but then it is not easy to do it, you know? It's like it's... When you were younger, you were quite rebellious, you were anti-authoritarian, you, you, know, you fancied yourself a rebel, but I, I know of late you've worried that you actually are becoming part of the bourgeoisie. Would you, would you mind just telling everyone about the nudist beach story when you took your children to the beach? Do you remember the story? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember the story. No, but it's, it's in the football book, uh, because the football book was written one summer uh, in letters. So I wrote letters to Frederick. This happened this day, um, and that was the game. What do you think about the game? I think this. And so the football life completely you know, merged together. And I was taking the children to my favorite beach, but it was my favorite beach in the winter. You know the place I went because it's so beautiful there. It's hard to get there, you have to walk through the forest, and, and, and um, then I thought I should bring my children there, and we went there, and, uh, and we you know, walked through the forest like for a long time, and, and then we came to the beach, and, and uh, the children was a bit ahead, and, and, and then I see there's, there's a lot of naked people here, you know, and, and, and as it was a nudist speech, and I got very angry. I thought, 
why, you know, why? I was like, I wanted to write a letter to the local newspaper <laughs> and complain about the nudists in, in, the, in, in the area, which is a very, yeah. But it was a joke too. I mean, I, it was fine, but it was very annoying. <laughs> what did your children say? I can't remember. Do you remember? No. No. Though I have memorized. I think of they were. I think actually they were. They were a bit embarrassed too. So we just left. Mm. And uh, we haven't talked about it since. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, uh, after this session, Karlova will be out in the, in the foyer signing books. Um, I think this has been a really incredible conversation. It is such a delight to have you here in Auckland. Please, everyone, join me in thanking Karlova Kanasko. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.